Kia ora and welcome to episode 113 of the Stag Roar. This episode I speak with Lisa Tamati. Um, those of you that don't know Lisa, Lisa is a professional ultra endurance athlete with 25 years experience running the toughest endurance events in the world. With over, get this, 140 ultra marathons to her name. Gee whiz. Um, she has national titles, a number of podium places and international races and many expeditions under her belt, constantly pushing the limits of human endurance. Lisa's also written two international best-selling running books and is a sought-after motivational speaker, a running coach, and a mindset expert. Lisa also hosts a podcast called Pushing the Limits, and I'll be on that uh, in the near future. An in-depth interview series teaching on her favorite topics, running the latest in medical and health science breakthroughs, fitness and nutrition adventure, and pushing the limits of human potential. Now, if that's not life less ordinary, I don't know. I think Lisa is absolutely extraordinary. Anyway, she has a book coming out very, very soon, and you can actually um, get that on pre-order. It's called Relentless. The uh, tag for that is How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds. That's what we got go into in this podcast. Um, yeah, basically, she was confronted with the hard challenge of her life. You know, and think about how many ultra marathons she's done. Her beloved mother Isabel suffered a huge aneurysm and stroke, and was left with massive brain damage. She was like a baby in a woman's body. The prognosis was dire. There was very little hope uh, she, she would ever have any quality of life again. But as you know, Lisa's a fighter. She absolutely refused to accept the words of the medical fraternity and instead decided that she was going to get her mother back or die trying. And you'll hear uh, a little bit about that in the podcast. It's pretty uh, both sad, funny, and inspiring uh, what Lisa gets up to. <laughs> so without laboring the fact, let's get into it. Lisa's an awesome lady. Unfortunately, we were held a little bit tight on the time restraints. Could have talked for hours with her on, you know, gone down, um, you know, plethora of rabbit holes. But uh, we stuck to the to the time frame and we blasted out a good podcast here. So hope you enjoy it. Make sure you contact Lisa if you do enjoy it. Uh, hit me up. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, enjoy. Kia ora, everyone. I have the absolute pleasure of talking with Lisa Tavanty. Now, when I first started listening to podcasts, Lisa was one of the people that I tuned into. Um, I listened to a couple of the guests that I've since had on, Paul Wood and Ben Warren. Um, Lisa, I usually start out by asking people what they did in the weekend because that's usually where people follow their passions. But from the outside looking in, you're someone that follows their passions every day of the week. Oh. But what, what did you do last weekend? <laughs> I was in the weekend now. Are we, I, I, don't even, I never know which day of the week it is half the time because it's just sort of seven days, <laughs> seven days is working and playing. Um, I think yesterday when we talked on the phone, I was out running. So that's what I spent uh, a good couple of hours doing yesterday. And... Um, Apart from that, yeah, looking after mum and, and uh, doing family sort of stuff and, and lots and lots of study and work. I'm, I'm pretty boring these days. <laughs> it depends on your perspective. I mean, we're um, forever learning and if you can tap into that and, and follow your curiosity, it takes you to absolutely amazing places. 
Um, before we get into that, because I know that's one of the things that drives your life is following your curiosity. And and um, I've even written a blog post about, you know, those, those little things that are pain in your life are often quite good to check out and, and, and look into further. But you said running, and that's what most people will know you from. When I talked to Zach Bitter, who He's got the world record for running in a flat round around the circle for a long period of time. And he's yep. not he's not bad at the trails, but yeah, for us here in New Zealand, we know Lisa Tamani as, as the trail adventurer runner. Um, yes, it's more than trails, actually. Yeah, like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm actually not that great on, on, on hilly trails either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a sort of flattish desert and I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So what's your favourite race? Oh, God, that's a hard one to start out with, mate. I'm probably... Um, would have to be a toss-up between the Badwater Ultramarathon, which was in Death Valley in the USA, which I did a couple of times, or La Ultra, which was a, the world's highest race, which was mm-hmm. 222 k's over the two highest passes in the world, in the Indian Himalayas, at, you know, extreme altitudes. So, uh, and when I say favourite, they were just like monumental. <laughs> <laughs> they <weren't exactly> fun. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they were massive challenges and and you know epic moments in life you know mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. those sort of things and with incredible teams uh, crews working for me and helping me um so yeah those would be a couple of the highlights for sure i sort of not really at all have an idea of what you're talking about uh <laughs> i just did four days in the kawika bush and um you know with a pack on your back and walking wow. mountains and off off track it's hard and stupid and you you curse and whatever yeah. but it, it is you know one of those things that's going to stay with me forever um is that a bit like ultra running like it this is, is- <laughs> it's no different at all actually you know because i mean and and you know when people you know talk about ultra running and you have this picture of someone you know tearing down a mountain or somewhere it's actually not like that it's very much a grind it's very much sometimes you're walking sometimes you're crawling sometimes you're running it's just anything forward you know mm-hmm. uh, so very very much like what you've just done for four days not much difference at all really yeah um, I've, I've heard you say and you said through some stuff thanks very much that the ultra pretty much ruined you for a while yeah 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 i've, I've definitely um Burnt my my burnt myself out a number of times over my career, and uh, that one you know, you know, smashed the crap out of my body pretty much. I like for example, I you know came back from running that that thing and uh, lost three teeth in one week. Um, oh, it's what you know you're putting your body through is just pretty pretty um, out there. And then of course um, I've had lots of problems with things like kidney kidney damage from rhabdomyolysis again mm-hmm. and again and again um, and uh, you know knock-on effects with adrenal burnout and thyroid problems and, and hormone problems and, and a whole host of nice nasty things <laughs> that can happen when you're being stupid and pushing your body to the absolute limit and I, I to be to be fair I, I sort of when I was younger, I thought, and there wasn't a heck of a lot of knowledge around back, you know, when I started 25-something years ago, there was no internet, there was no, you know, buckets of knowledge out there on this sort of stuff, and it was sort of a pioneering era in, in doing this, and, um, you know, I, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I just, uh, and I thought I would just recover, so when you, you know, you damage your kidneys, you think, oh, well, that's bad, but two weeks later, I'll be fine again, 
and then you were fine, but you were actually not fine. You know what I mean? Mm. On a deeper level, things were starting to add up. So I've definitely learned a few lessons along the way now, which I which I love sharing with uh, you know the athletes that I coach. So we we coach a lot of people, um, about seven hundred actually around the world, and. Wow. Um, I love sharing those sort of insights and, and helping hopefully, you know, I'm older and wiser and been around the block a, a few times um, and try and avoid those sort of pitfalls as much as possible and ultra running, you know, it's not always a, um, possible to, to, you know, it's um, sometimes on the limits of what's, what's doable. Um, mm. But there are, you know, there are sometimes reasons where you want to be pushing the absolute limits the thing is, you don't want to be doing this every week. No. <laughs> That's probably a good thing to <laughs> think about. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, do you think that, like you say, you're in the pioneering days of ultra, and now it's becoming more and more popular? Like Joe Rogan has had a few of them on there. Yeah. Um, Got to and, you know him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shit, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> um, but what I was getting at is do you think that that sharing of information is the reason why we're seeing, you know, more and more people be able to do it at the elite level, more and more variation in racing and, and people fighting the niche. Like you say, you're the trail but flatter. Um, Zach's the running around in a circle. Don't know how he does it. Courtney yeah. <laughs> Courtney can is a mountain goat. You know, what do you think that's that's really helped as well, the sharing of information oh, and providing niches? Internet, then, you know, the internet and social media and um, people, um, and then there's a danger side to that too because if you, you know, if you're on Facebook and Instagram a lot and you're a runner, you're just going to see people running every day, damn day and you're going yes. to, everybody's doing everything and what am I doing? So, you know, you get a bit of that FOMO thing happening and, oh, my God, I need to do more. Um, so I think that's really helped a lot, you know, um, and I think there's an absolute need in humanity because of our soft lifestyle, if you like. We don't have to fight for our food, or well, you might do, but most, nah. people <laughs> um, most people are, you know, go to the supermarket and buy their food and they don't have to build their own houses. They don't have to clear the land. They don't have to do any of those things that our forefathers had to do. Um, and so now we're disconnected from our, our you know, connection to nature and also our um, innate need to push ourselves physically, which I think we all have. And what happens when we don't do that and we're sitting in, you know, in front of computers and offices and these artificial environments with artificial lights and you know, we're not moving, is that um, you know, for some people that becomes a massive problem and leads to a whole lot of chronic illnesses and diseases and obesity and all those horrible things. And for others, it leads to a need in their time off to go and do something epic or pioneering in a way, you know, out in nature and pushing their own limits and finding out what they're about. And so I think it's covering off that, that, that basic human need to be mm. in nature and, and find out what you're all about, like physically what you're all about and mentally where you go to, you know, when you're pushing the limits of of what you're capable of you're going to find out an awful lot about your character and it's going to teach you so much more so for me running is um really the byproduct you know it's um it's the journey that you go on on the inside that is far more important that will help you in life the mental toughness stuff that you learn the resilience that you learn the discipline that you learn the the habits and the rituals and the stuff that you gather along the way on this journey that's the real value of it rather mm. than running from a to b <laughs> you know, that, that's where i see the true value in, in running 
Absolutely. Um, coming from a swimming background, there's a thing called black lion fever because you go to some strange mental places when you're swimming and staring at a black lion. Yeah. And having, you know, tried my hardest to be a high-level sports person for oh, um, from about 8 to 25, I was, I was trying my or maybe even later than that. Yeah. Um, and then you then you find meditation and you go, oh, shit, this is the same. <laughs> but I'm but I'm but I'm not exhausting myself. Uh, have you found meditation or used meditation or, or, yep. or your experience there? <laughs> I just stood up from doing a yoga and a meditation before, you know, um, and it's it's become a big, you know, and, and becoming more and more important. Um, and you know, like with a lot of us, I struggle with the meditation, just quiet my mind down. But that actually means you need more of it. Yeah, uh, and I'm certainly not where I need to be with it. Um, the the power of um, meditation, I think, to, to cure a lot of our problems and because uh, a lot of our issues that many of us have are related to stress and this fight or flight response that we're sort of constantly in the state of stress hormones, you know, with cortisol and adrenaline going... Coffee. Coffee, <laughs> yeah. All of that sort of, you know, the, the, the phone being available to and all of this sort of artificial stress that no generation in history has been exposed to. And so it's even more important now that we go and we do those things that are going to quieten our mind because it actually has a physical response. You know, like I didn't, for years I saw you should meditate and you should, you should, um, you know, be not getting stressed because stress is bad for you. But we didn't actually get the explanation of what does stress do? You know, mm. like stress, I now know, you know, shuts down your immune system or, or, or slows it down you know, slows down your digestive system, slows down all the rest recovery and repair systems. And if you're in a state of fight or flight all day, every day, which a lot of us are, um, you know, it's like running away from the tiger back in the days, which was a, an immediate threat. And we needed all our energy to go into our muscles. And that was why it took it away from the immune system and repair and all the digestive stuff and all of that sort of thing and put it towards your muscles so you could run, which made sense from an evolutionary perspective. But now we've been chased by the proverbial tiger, which is now the shitty email from the boss or the phone mm -hmm. call that's just come in or the kids that are screaming or the, the deadlines that we've got looming. Those are the tigers now and they're coming at us thick and fast. And this is causing us to be completely wound up all the time, which is really having a massive effect on our health. And this is where exercise and meditation and some basics like good hydration um, and staying away from too much alcohol and coffee and, you know, of course, medications and, and, you know, that, you know, that we don't want to be on. Obviously, we need some, um, but we're not, not abusing them and drugs and all of that sort of stuff can, you know, that can lead us down into a downward spiral or an upward spiral. And you might be surprised a lot of the people that, you know, we work with, we just work on some very basic things for starters, like getting good sleep, meditating, quietening the brain down, hydration, good food, doing some exercise, and hello, half of the health problems disappear, you know, um, and pretty quickly. And this can have an effect, like if you're having stress, like I'm working with a client at the moment, we do something called epigenetic testing, and their biotype, because it's broken down into different health types, which is a discussion for another day, has a lot of tone in their body with a, the hypertone hyper in their, their fascia and stuff. Mm. Now, if they're stressed, their whole body's going to be like, or, you know, and we all have this to some degree and some types are worse than others, and this is having effects on their 
their back and on their digestive and, and their immune system and and on and on. It's a, it's a knock-on effect. So, yes, meditation is a big part of it. And I include running as a part of my meditation as well as the normal sort of what you'd expect to be meditating as well. I think both of those are valid forms oh. of meditation. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, people should listen to that again. One thing you brought up was, was alcohol. And I think alcohol actually highlights one of the effects of the sympathetic nervous system. You said it go, we go into this fight or flight and that's pretty much our brainstem. So we, it, it basically cuts off your higher brain f- function um, mm-hmm. and a hundred percent your prefrontal cortex. Now, when we, speak about, when we speak about alcohol and why people make silly decisions and do silly things and their, and their <laughs> muscles and stuff go weird um, is because exactly that. And, and so that is the real danger of being hyper-stressed is that your thinking, your higher thinking, your understanding, your logic is gone and your re- reflex and and stuff is heightened but only in a certain direction and so you can be caught unawares all of a sudden or you can you know make mistakes all of a sudden if if you're in this chronic state and so that's the that's the buzzy thing (laughs) alcohol on a a pretty like on a on a physiological level in regards to you know your prefrontal cortex and your logical thinking processes do something similar then don't they yeah yeah Um, Um, narrowing you said something to me yesterday on the phone when we talked yeah. that it narrows your when you're stressed you lose your um peripheral vision you, you get this tunnel vision going on and i've read that but when you said it because you're an optometrist obviously you said yeah, physically they actually end up just being able to see sort of straight ahead and i'm yeah. like holy heck really because that was an interesting aside you know working with someone with a brain injury who's now got their peripheral vision back and, and wondering how the hell did that happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a rabbit hole we went down yesterday. But it, it, again, that sort of shows that, you know, when you are stressed, you do have tunnel vision, you don't see anything out the sides, and, yeah, you're not going to be as re- be able to react as, as well as you otherwise would. Mm. Um, yeah. Stupidly, I've had two boxing benches. Um, <laughs> and it is not the hitting part. <laughs> yeah, as as and especially the first one, it was it was bouncy boxing in the middle of, in the middle of the Captain Cook Tavern. Um, <laughs> but that time, that was the first time I think I saw the person's head, and that was about it. The whole garden bar at the, at the Cook, if anyone's ever been there, was full of people. I didn't hear them, see them, uh, witness them, or anything until it was all over. And then the second time we'd actually done some training and by the third round, and it was three rounds, I could actually hear my corner, could actually uh, witness the people. And that's what what they sort of talk about with martial arts is this flow state of um, heightened, I guess it's aggression or channeled aggression, channeled sympathetic nervous system, but at the same time this peace and calm and ability to make decisions, which is your parasympathetic nervous system, and that's what it takes to be a high-level, you know, oh. combat combat sport athlete. Which, which is, you know, a, a scary place as it is when we go to talk about concussion and acquired brain injury. But at the same time, it's it's why we're so fascinated by it because Absolutely. it's it's so channeled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I was listening yesterday and learning about brain waves and 
controlling your brain and controlling your stress responses. And the guy was talking about um, an expert PhD in uh, uh, brain neuroscience. <laughs> and um, he was talking about cats. You watch your cat at a windowsill looking at some prey outside. <laughs> his body is completely relaxed and he's hyper-focused. His eyes are just following that prey. So he's in a state of SMR, I think it was called, the SMR uh, state of, of brain waves. And he's able, when that cat is ready to pounce, because he's in a relaxed state physically, he's able to pounce. And because he's also relaxed and can completely focus, when we're under tension and we're scared, like you, you know, probably normally would be in a fight, you're not able to actually physically respond as well as if you were completely in control and completely re relaxed and then able to strike really, really quickly and really fast. Mm. Um, and, and probably like getting to that mastery level of martial arts or, or boxing is about being in that state like the cat in the windowsill watching the, the bird, you know? Mm fully relaxed on the inside everything's going slowly but completely focused on the prey yeah. um, and that's a really good state to be able to be and be able to control that um, I find it really fascinating to study things that are around controlling your mindset under stress and crises situations and observing yourself when you've been in situations where you have or haven't reacted as you would like to and then trying to reanalyze them how would I have been better, you know, reacting to that and being able to to learn to control to a certain degree your physiology so that you're not hijacked by it when you when the fear comes. Um, and I, you know, have had to in certain races where you've been in really dangerous situations, um, being able to control what your thoughts are doing and compartmentalize things and being able to function despite the fear. Um, and, and then there have been other situations where I've done that really well. And then there have been other situations where I've completely, you know, run around like a cabbage head and <laughs> not done it well. <laughs> and, and trying to understand what it is and how do you control those mechanisms is really an interesting area of study too. Mm. So um, speaking of like a, a fearful thing, was it Libya you illegally ran across? Yeah, that was, I didn't run across it. This was the expedition, so this was even before I got into ultra running. Yeah. <laughs> um, a 250k expedition, four of us, um, across the military barred zone. So it was, yeah, illegal, and we had to be really careful getting out of the oasis that we were started in and coming back into civilization because, you know, yeah, and, and if we'd been caught, we'd have been in deep, deep trouble, you know, sort of on the border between Egypt and Libya, that sort of area, um, you know, dangerous place to be, but also an incredibly beautiful desert, like one, like the most beautiful desert I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of deserts. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of kilometers of them. And, and it was just absolutely mind-blowing. And we wanted to go through there and we were hoping to do a book, which never actually came to fruition. Um, and, but we only had two litres of water a day, which was the, the biggest problem because we could not physically carry anymore and there was no outside support. Obviously, we were doing this under the radar, literally. Um, and two litres of water in a 40 degrees during the day type climate and uh, was, was absolutely insane when I look back at it now. Um, mm. And very um, naive and, and a bit stupid. Um, and we had like, I had a backpack that was 35 kilos and I only Jesus. weighed 
nine kilos or something at the time. So that was like two thirds of my body weight. So I literally could not get up if I fell down. I was on my back like a turtle, you know, unable to get up without the guys putting me on my feet. And we were covering 45 kilometers a day with 35 wow. kilo backpacks in 40 degrees heat with two liters of water. I mean, you do, you do the math on that. <laughs> and uh, it, it was pretty extreme. Um, so that was my introduction really to, to deserts. And in the middle of this, uh, the relationship that I had been in for five years blew up. Oh, gee. <laughs> boyfriend of five years decides to leave me. So it was awesome. <laughs> Gosh. You have to read the book for that whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Is it out now? Or, or, or yeah, those, no, I've got two, so I've got um, two books and my third one's coming out. So the first book, uh, that, one's, that story's in the first book, Running Hot. So I've got mm-hmm. really hot, running to extremes, and my third book comes out in March, uh, which is relentless. Mm. So, yeah, those are the three titles. So yeah, that story's in the first one. This is this is before I started ultra running and actually got into deserts and things after this, um, based on that experience. And we we survived that, but it was I had some major damage um, physically, and also you know uh, it was the end of a five year abusive relationship, really, and that was a turning point in my life that 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 desert um it changed everything from then on and so yeah pretty out of it <laughs> don't recommend don't do this at home kids <laughs> um so let, let's go into relentless um and and we've been introduced by uh chris desmond from uncomfortable is okay in, in wellington yeah. who yeah, um, we've, yeah we've, we've both sort of done, done each other's podcasts but um Acquired brain injury is is why he thought we'd have have a have a good chat. And I've spoken about my concussion. I've had uh, a couple of people on here about concussion. I'd love to get Dom Diagostino on here one day, um, yeah. and and he's linked to something that you're passionate about, and that's hyperbarics. Um, before we get into why that's useful, t- tell us about the the frustration and starting point of of yeah. finding yeah. these other modalities. Yeah, so I had a situation, so four years ago, almost to the day, um, my mum had a massive aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain, and then subsequently also a stroke a couple of days later. Um, So uh, the aneurysm was like blood right throughout the brain, and blood and brain matter don't do well together. Um, And she was left fighting for her life. They didn't expect her to live. It was a massive bleed. and we had a, a, a misdiagnosis immediately. We came into emergency department, you know, she'd collapsed on the floor, massive, massive headaches, which apparently was something, the worst pain in the world that you can have um, when this sort of thing happens. You can imagine the brain cavity, like the skull was a fixed thing and you've mm-hmm. got blood pouring into it. So the pressure's increasing. So your brain is just being squeezed to death. Um, and the doctor said, she's, oh, she's having a migraine, you know. Oh, and and in the the ambulance driver that had taken her up to the hospital had said, I think she's having a stroke. And he mm. told the doctor this. The doctor ignored it. And so I didn't know anything at that stage. So I, you know, you listen to the doctors, don't you? Not so much anymore. Um, <laughs> and I, so we listened to, you know, and he gave us some painkillers and said, Well, we'll just watch her for the next four hours. And you know, and then after four hours, she had another massive attack, like a real, you know, um, and. And by this time, I was desperate because I was, she was in extreme pain. And I'd seen her have migraines earlier in her life. She used to have migraines regularly until she cut out gluten. 
Mm. So she hadn't had one for 20 years and I knew that this was not how she would react with a migraine. So I got a friend of mine who's a paramedic who works up at the hospital periodically and and she'd crewed for me on many of my races and was an ultra runner and knew mum very well. And she came up and she took one look at mum and said, oh, she's having some brain, you know, stroke or something like this. And so she went to the um, doctor and gave him what for. Mm. Get her a get her a CT scan right now, and so he relented. And so after six hours, we got a CT scan, and it came back blood right throughout the brain, aneurysm, massive, you know, panic. Then to to get her help, um, it took another twelve hours for her then to be transferred via the air ambulance to Wellington Hospital because we live up in New Plymouth, and uh, so eighteen hours to get into surgery to have the stent to relieve the blood off the you know start relieving the blood off the brain, which you know the gold standard is one hour. Mm-hmm. So for something to survive this at the age of seventy four was just absolutely um, amazing. And then of course she wasn't out of the woods when that happened. It was another three weeks in and out of coma. The you have something called vasospasm. So when blood and brain matter mix it causes the brain to spasm and it can spasm for the next three weeks. And so you lose more and more of the brain tissue and it can kill you at any time. So um, she would be in and out of coma and then she'd have some function and then she'd have less. And and as the time wore on, she lost more and more and more of her brain. After three weeks, she stabilized and she survived. And, um, but she had basically hardly any higher function. She had no, um, no memory. She had a couple of words. She had no ability to control any of her bodily functions. Um, yeah, really bad state. So not much over a vegetative state, a little bit. Um, then they, you know, rehab situation for the next three months up in uh, New Plymouth Hospital after that critical phase. And in this time after that experience in ED, I was just going hard out researching. Dr. Google was my best friend, and I was. Mm-hmm studying everything I possibly could with, with about brain injury and about aneurysms and about the drugs that she was on and the stuff. And I came across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And this is what they use for dive accidents, decompression chambers. Um, and they found that when you actually go the opposite way, you take someone down in a decompression chamber to being the equivalent of um, underwater. So when you, the further you go underwater, the more pressure there is. So they call those atmospheres. Um, and when you went down to, uh, for brain injury, 1.5 atmospheres is the ideal uh, um, state to go down to. When they did this and they put you on an oxygen mask, you would take up up to seven times the amount of oxygen into the body. And it compresses the oxygen molecules so that it can pl- um, pass through the blood-brain barrier, which you have in mm-hmm. your head. And it can actually target the cells in your brain that are alive, not the dead ones like their history, but typically around the dead ones are ones that are not functioning, but they're still alive, but they're not firing properly. And those are the ones you can target with hyperbaric. So I studied all this and, you know, um, researched it and read all the papers on it and books on it and and thought this is something that's going to help her. And I had, as an athlete, I'd done um, a couple of races up at, at extreme altitude and I knew what the opposite of having oxygen did to your body. I'd had a hypoxic brain concussion from being in, at altitude and um, using a hypoxic tent mm-hmm. in the preparation for one of my races, which is where it takes a part of the oxygen out of the, the, the air that you're breathing at night to try to get your body to produce more red blood cells so that you're better when you get to altitude. I went too far too fast and was sleeping at six and a half thousand meters every night. 
don't do that at home either. <laughs> and I'd ended up with a uh, typical, you know, impatient athlete running out of time, trying to get the most and pushed it way too far. Ended up knocking off my own brain cells and I really had none to spare, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion. Um, and I had all this bacteria in my body just go wild because when you don't have enough oxygen, the bacteria goes uh, crazy and proliferates. And I was seeing these things in mum. Mm-hmm. I was seeing the, the infections and things like that um, happening. And she was sleeping at this stage 20 plus hours a day. Um, and so in my mind, I went, uh-huh, I think she's got sleep apnea, which is when yeah. you stop breathing uh, during your sleep phases. And the doctors ignored me again when I said I wanted a sleep apnea test. And so I went outside them. I got an outside consultant. I brought them into the hospital, got in trouble, didn't care, um, did a test with her, and it came back severe sleep apnea um, to the point that she was down at around 70% oxygen levels at night and knocking off her brain cells. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why the infections and why she was not having any improvement. So then we got her on the CPAP machine, mm-hmm. uh, which forces positive um, ear pressure down your throat when you were sleeping and keeps the oxygen going, basically. And so then I started thinking, uh, oxygen, oxygen, okay. And then I discovered the hyperbaric. And I, as soon as I got her out of the hospital, which was three months later, and she's 24-7 around the clock here, two people. Um, and they, I had a massive fight to get her home. Mm-hmm. They didn't want us to, to take her home. They said we had to put her in a hospital-level care aged facility. And I was just like, that's not happening. She's coming home. I'm going to, you know, look after her and, and so on. And they said, there's no way in hell you're going to cope with someone who's 24-7 care. There's just no way in hell. So I remember taking my books into them and throwing them at the social worker. <laughs> I'm not leaving my mum. The, there's no way that these people are going to be able to care for her like, I mm-hmm. will, you know, not that these places are bad or anything, but I wanted to give her the optimum chance at rehabilitation. And I thought that if she's around her own things in her own house, in her own environment with her own family, she's going to know that on some level and she's going to feel loved. She's going to feel wanted. She's going to have memories come back easier. She's going to, you know, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I really came up against a brick wall and I had to fight like crazy to get a little bit of resources to take her home, which was just like caregivers in the morning and in the evening for an hour to help the showering and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I got my brother who looks like The Rock uh, <laughs> came up with me and we got the resources. <laughs> I won't say anymore. <laughs> and this, this is what really pisses me off is that how many people don't have that? Yeah. How many people go under the, the wheels of the bus because the system is made to, to, to get rid of you and put you in a home and to, you know, they're trying to get me to sign non-resuscitation orders and all this sort of thing. And she that's, was terminal. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, that's that covering their ass thing, eh? They, they don't want, they don't want, which is unfortunately how, like you say, it's a system issue and, and you know, they, they can't, uh, say, oh, yeah, we'll let, let you look after them, uh, and then things go up, you know, pear shaped, and, and you, you know, you wouldn't, but you come back at them saying, oh, you shouldn't have let me take, take them home, you know, that's, yeah, that's, it's, that's it's the unfortunate a- risk for them, eh? Yeah, and, and, and I get it that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to cope, but yeah. I had shown them that I could, I would cope, and that we had a really amazingly strong family 
you know, that was there, that was going to be there. And they just told me you'll burn out. You. So they took all the way, all hope. And there was like no hope that you're going, she's going to improve. She'll never do much of anything again. Her quality of life is always going to be this bad to make her comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like Chris Desmond's podcast is called Uncomfortable is Okay. And I'm definitely about, we don't do comfortable. We don't, <laughs> we constantly challenge, we fight, we overcome. This is what we're all about as a family. And I don't do comfortable because comfortable leads to death, in my opinion. And then certainly in a case like this where you have to fight with every ounce of your being to do this. So I eventually got a home and I approached a dive company of all places who had a hyperbaric chamber because these things don't grow on trees. They're really hard to find access to. Yeah. Um, and these amazing people let me use the chamber. I had to sign legal waivers and so on. Um, every doctor that I talked to was really negative about it and it's, it's bullshit and it's not going to help and, and all this sort of stuff. But the research that I'd done had said it was, and there is massive clinical data. If anyone actually wants to go and have a look, do so because you'll find that it's really beneficial for brain injury, but also for things like multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, cancer, um, uh, wound healing, which they use it in New Zealand for wound healing, for burns, for gangrene at Auckland and Christchurch hospitals, but they don't use it for brain injury and you can't get access to it, which is absolute travesty. Anyway, yeah. I got her 33 treatments at this place and then the chamber had to be taken off. So we, I got her out of the hospital, put her through this thing two hours a day, uh, roughly, and a huge thing to do with someone so fragile, like, you know, being awake for an hour was a massive thing for her, you know, we would stick her on a forklift and put her into this big chamber, and um, everyone thought I was completely nuts, including my own family, but they went along with it, because we had nothing else, you know, mm-hmm. and there was no other hope on offer. After 33 treatments, my mum started to wake up, is the way I can express it, she started to have a flicker of intelligence behind her eyes. She started to try to talk. She tried to, to move her upper limbs more. She was trying to communicate. She was, um, and, and so I knew that it was working. And then the chamber got taken off on a contract. And so I had to mortgage the house. And then I bought a hyperbaric chamber, um, what they call a mild hyperbaric. So there's two levels that you can get, the hospital medical grade ones and, mm. and, and the mild ones. Now, if you're a, private citizen you can't get one of the big ass ones because of the regulations around it you have to have hyperbaric technicians you have to have um because oxygen is in itself a bomb basically Mm. there's all these legal rules so i did what i could i got what i could the best quality that i could and i put her through another 250 sessions over the next um, couple of years and while i was doing this i started to develop a therapy plan um, and I tried to stay one step ahead of her recovery. So I studied everything from uh, nootropics, which is brain-enhancing drugs and supplements. I changed her diet, um, did the hyperbaric, did physio, did things like functional neurology to the best that I could via YouTube a lot of the time I was learning stuff from because um, I couldn't get access to the people that I, that I you know, knew were available overseas I tried to get her stem cells, couldn't get that. I tried to get her to into a program in America, but I couldn't get her to travel there. It was too difficult. It was everything I tried. I tried um, infrared light therapy, you know, you name it, I did it. And I'd just weigh up the risk and the reward, and if it wasn't too risky, and I think that there was a reward, I'd try it. And the upshot of it is, like, um, now four years later, um, my mum is completely normal again. 
she is reading, writing, walking, talking. She's got her full driver's license. She's got her full brain power back. She's pre-aneurysm levels on all, all her tests. Um, uh, she has a slight limp when she walks. We're still working on her balance and her um, uh, the right side of her body. She had an extra stroke on top of the aneurysm, and so she has a little bit of a problem on that side. That side of the body doesn't react, and we're working on that constantly. But she's got her, you know, full back into life and loving life again and independence and, you know, and to come from not being able to put food in your mouth Mm. Not being able to know that I'm your daughter, not being able to recognize a picture of a giraffe or something to becoming normal again. I can tell you that's a pretty um, epic journey that we've been on. And so I have written a book about this and it's called Relentless and it comes out on the 11th of March. And if anyone's interested, you can pre-order that now on my website um, at lisatarmity.com. Plug for the book. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, It's good. We'll, we'll, we'll have that in the show notes. Not that it's hard to find, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I, this this book's nearly killed me getting it out because I'm not the greatest writer, and I had to have a lot of help. And um, but the, it was so important to me to get the story out there because there are so many people that are going to benefit from this. And I had mm. a couple of books that really helped me when I was in the deep dark spaces with Mum and everyone telling me there's there's no hope. And there was a couple of books that I'd I'd read. Dr. Norman Deutsch, who's a neuroscientist, um, had written about plasticity of the brain and how it can Mm -hmm. adapt and change. And some of the stories in there that really gave me hope that I could do this. And even though she was older than anybody, you know, in any of these studies or any of these, and neuroplasticity is, you know, declines with age, I believed I could because somebody had done it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that name, that name, Norman Doidge has come up before. Um, yeah. We had when we had Marky, who is his our director at work, that um, does visual visual training for people and deals with acquired and traumatic brain injury. That's exactly what he says about the wow. neuroplasticity. So amazing synergy there. Yeah, <laughs> I have to talk to him then, or talk to you about the next level in Mum's uh, recovery then, because I need more help with the functional neurology side. Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. But yeah, so this book's really important for me because I want people to be empowered. I, want, I also want people to understand that they have to take responsibility for their own health. Don't rely on our medical system. Don't rely on the local doctors. And this is no indictment of any particular person or any. It, there are just limitations to the system, mm-hmm. limitations in resources, limitations in time. Um, also, the fact that the, the world's knowledge is doubling every five years. So can, how can anybody keep up? So you, if you have a really deep specialized problem, you better go and do your own deep research because yes. your local doctor hasn't got time to go and do that. And if you understand that, and then, and it, it takes, you know, I'm lucky that I, I, um, I learn quickly as far as, you know, like the science and stuff, and I can process a lot of information and I, you know, I know how to, to, to do this, which has been a, a blessing, but I've learned it along the way too, you know, like it's, I have, I have no background as a doctor. I have no background in any of this sort of stuff. But you don't need to. You can go and find it, the people. You can mm. go and find online pretty much an expert in everything and learn from them. And it takes – you'll run up 100 rabbit holes and they'll lead you nowhere, but there'll be one that will take you further than anybody else will take you. And you have to go all in on this. And so this book is a, is a, it's a, it's a book about mental – toughness and mental resilience and persistence and overcoming obstacles 
that will teach people a lot of things about that. But it's, and it's also about the therapies that I used in regards to brain injury. Um, but it, more than that, it's about an attitude to life and a taking responsibility for your own health and your family's health. Mm-hmm. So that you're not just blindsided by the system that isn't perfect. And that, you know, we have limited resources. There's not enough money in our system. If you're over 65, you're going to be put to the back of the list on a lot of things. So if you don't fight, um, and even for younger people, you're still, you know, you've got to do your own research. You've got to have an advocate, um, you know, advocate for your loved ones if you're ever in a situation like this. And don't be too polite. You know, I was too polite in that, that um, emergency department. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what to ask for, and I didn't mm-hmm. scream and shout loud enough. Sometimes yeah. it's the squeaky it's the oil. Um, Absolutely. You know, yeah, I had a, had a case of that over Christmas. Um, and, and again, it goes to the limitations of the system. You know, the the referral went out, the patient got the referral when they got back from their GP and, and she was on the phone on the Monday and it just basically said to her, you need to go back. They they didn't have the information there. They haven't done what I've asked for. You need to go back. And and understandably, she was a bit concerned with, with the way the system works and and. Being that, you know, I'm an optometrist and I had uh, referred her to the ophthalmology department to deal with her eyes. The real yeah. issue was was with her, her medical state. And it was just like, um, you're allowed to go back. There's always someone acutely there. If there's not, they'll, they'll put you up to the hospital uh, if your GP is not there. Um, they will and should see you. If they don't have the copy of the referral you've got it take it with you you know show them the photo that of, of your eye and, and what that means and and the things that i've requested and, and they'll understand they should you know you, you, don't, you don't want to say you don't want to say they will uh, they should understand the severity of this you know and you've been there they've treated you you have not got better in fact you're telling me you're worse yeah. this is a headache this is vascular get back to them and find out why this is going on and you know um it's it's funny you say about picking up on stuff and it is partly about exposure and and, and like you said you don't have a doctor background but you have you've pushed the body to the extremes of physiology and you've seen where it goes wrong and you've got things to parallel to it now life is all about exposures and like i i didn't get into optometry and so that forced me to go do a um, Bachelor of Science and I did some neurology and, re- and reproduction. So that uh, two massive systems. Yep. And then and then so I did optometry with this lens in the back of my mind, excuse the pun, um, of, of the brain and, and the um, endocrine system and stuff like that. And so wow. that's, that's really shaped my life. And then going back to the hyperbaric stuff and the CPAP machine, it's weird how life works. You know, these people, this South African couple who from Auckland, for some reason, was seeing me in um, in Taumudu, and the, the the wife. I was suspicious of type two diabetes, and and yep. she might have even had it or something. And we were talking through, and this guy was an engineer in the CPAP lab at Fisher and Parkle. Yeah, and he all of a sudden just pipes up from the corner about oxygen, the mitochondria, energy, <laughs> uh, how the brain becomes insulin resistant. Um, how if they can fix the mitochondria, they fix the they fix the um, the sleep apnea, and then you know this year there's been there's been a um, 
report to say that glaucoma has a massive link with with sleep apnea. Sure enough, sleep apnea has a massive link with high blood pressure. It's all metabolic yes. and and all mitochondria. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like now. So now the amount of sleep studies that I'm requesting has just you know wow. multi- multiplied. Exciting <laughs> stuff, mate. This is exciting yeah. because you so you're so right and. Um, um, do you know Dave Asprey on Bulletproof Radio? Yeah, yeah, got you. Obviously, but um, <laughs> um, you know a lot of the stuff that he talks about in the, his latest book, Human. I don't agree with everything Dave Asprey no. said, but there's a lot of stuff that the, the research that he has is just. And this is the thing you've got to pick out from people the bits that you you believe and that you see repeated from different people, different. Mm-hmm. You know, like you telling me that as an optometrist, that excites me because. You know, like it, that, that that's a correlation between uh, epigenetics and ophthalmology and, you know, metabolic disorders. And, you know, like it's just, it, it, it starts to crisscross. Mm. What I love doing is seeing patterns across different things when I'm studying. Um, so we do something called epigenetic testing, as I said earlier, in our uh, company. And um, so we're health coaches and do. Um, train a lot of athletes as well but we do so epigenetics is the study of how the environment that you live in your food your water your your toxic load your everything your air um your sleep and all that affects your genes and it looks at giving specific recommendations based on your epigenetics and your biotype and how it's expressing now so how your genes are expressing right now Mm -hmm. So things like exactly what the right foods are to eat for your body, the, the exact times of the day, like chronobiology. So it's, it's taking 15 areas of science, you know, neuroscience, chronobiology, embryology, anthropometry, um, uh, even Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine. All of these things have been, all the knowledge from all of these different sciences have been put together into one tool, 10,000 algorithms by Mind you, mm-hmm. behind us is a really uh, deep level tool, but it gives us specific recommendations for uh, our clients exactly on on things like how their mind works, which parts of their mind they use the most, the way that they uh, process information, the the work environment that they'll do well in, the social environment that they'll do well in, the nutrition, the um, the what times of the day is a really big one. Um, what the dominant hormones are and the neurotransmitters and how these affect different areas of their life and their personality. And it starts to like, you start to see a real big crossover between what were previously siloed areas of medicine, you know, endocrinology and, you know, reproductive and this and that and all the other types. You're starting to see interrelationships between because we are complete whole people we're not mm-hmm. one you know if you go give an example if you, if you put a lady on the pill you know reproductive mm-hmm. uh, system is shut down basically and this is having massive effects on things like her decision-making ability her you know her ability to pick the right man in their life yeah know? that one <laughs> <laughs> you know, far-reaching things that nobody has ever told anyone. Well, you know, I certainly wasn't told when I was put on the pill for, for uh, menstrual problems as a young girl of all the effects it can have, you know. And now they're starting to understand all that interrelatedness. 
And this mm. is a really exciting time in history to be alive in, in regards to all of this because the next 10 years in, in the medical world or in the health and the preventative world is just going to be amazing, the stuff that we start to get access to and the personalization of the therapies. And so there's no just one size fits all. I mean, even as trainers, like training people, we used to, you know, you train two people with the exact same program, give them the same diet to follow, and you get completely different results. And your tendency was to think, well, one's following it and one's not. But that's not the case all the time. They can both be following it and getting completely different results because they have different epigenetic, well, different biotypes. And this person needs to be trained this way and this one needs to be trained that way to get the different results. Now we understand that and we have that knowledge and then we can actually specifically make the program work for that person in regards to their food, in regards to their training, into the, into the, their, the way that we motivate them. Mm. Give an example, like mum who is what they call a guardian body type, is a very nurturing, she has a lot of prolactin, which is one of her, her dominant hormones, um, which means she's a very nurturing, caring, look after the world person to the, to the detriment of her own health many times. Prone to cardiovascular disease, prone to weight gain. Uh, these are sort of typical things for her biotype. She's not motivated by a sporting challenge. You know, she's not motivated by me saying, come on, we're going to go harder, we're going to win this race, or, you know, even as a young woman. She was not motivated by that. If I say to her, your, your family are depending on you to stay around and be alive and you, you've got to look after your granddaughter and if you don't do this training today and if you don't eat right, then you're not going to be able to do that. That will get her ass moving. Mm. Yeah? That will make her motivated. Whereas for me, I'm a crusader activator, which <laughs> is two types. I'm very motivated by sporting challenge. I'm very much mission-focused, mission-based, sometimes to the detriment of everyone else around me, can be a very, you know, single-mind, head-through-the-wall type person, risk-taker. My dominant hormones are like adrenaline and dopamine, so I have a, a certain personality type. When I understand that, then I know how to motivate me. And the whole fitness industry has been run, typically, by people like me. Yeah. And then you go and train people on the other side of the, the wheel, they have a wheel, uh, and that doesn't work. And you're going, works for me. Why isn't it working for them? You know, <laughs> and this, and this, this amazing information we have now. Why it doesn't work? And we know how to to help people. So that's a really, really exciting program that we're that we're using at the moment as well. Awesome. I'm I'm glad we got that across. And um, because I'm conscious of the time, you've you've got you've got someone to got to meet with. Client coming in. Yeah, ten minutes. So we better uh, wrap it up. But um, you know, yeah. I would love to talk to you on my podcast. So my yeah. podcast is Pushing the Limits, if anyone wants to check that out. And I'd like, like to get your insights on the whole eyes and brain and all of that sort of good stuff and do a deep dive in there. Awesome. Um, and, yeah, thanks very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate the work that you are doing in spreading these great messages and having great, you know, lots of really cool guests on your show that, that, that share some good insights because I think that's yeah. really, really important. Yeah, no, and it's great being able to have conversations. I was talking about the podcast with somebody last last night. You know, you, you, there's there's huge potential when it comes to podcasting, but the real hack is you get to have an amazing conversation with somebody from for an hour or two. And if anybody listens, or well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I started my podcast selfishly for this reason to help yeah. with my mum and to get access to the, the the best experts around the world, and it's been the most amazing ride. So, you guys, you know, get into your podcast, man. It's like having a university in your pocket. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I listened to to Peter Adair and, and I was listening to something yesterday. Oh, two days ago about fish oil. Yesterday was about fructose. I'm just like, man. <laughs> You know, you don't need to go to medicine, or you, you do to, you do to, to treat people, but you don't need yeah. to do medicine anymore to to know the stuff. Know the stuff. Yeah, you, you, you have to have a certificate and a doctorate and, and all that sort of good stuff, and, and that's great. Um, but um, as far as the latest research and stuff goes, go to podcasts. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> um, so you, you've got your podcast, uh, lucytarmody dot com. We'll obviously have links to all your yep, socials. The limits is the is the name of the show, and lucytarmody dot com is my website. Yeah, yeah, and that links to like Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, and, so on yeah. Facebook and Instagram, it's just at lucytarmody, and we we have three flagship programs. We have our online run training academy running hot, and then we have the epigenetics program, and we also have a mental toughness um, course that we you know, which is all about developing resilience and emotional resilience and um, physical stamina and, um, you know, mental, the mental side of the game. Yeah, and they can can see how you're a diverse person and they can also get you along to to speak with small groups, large groups, dinners, keynote speaking, emceeing, organising the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they, they, uh, do way too much and way too scattered sometimes, but, yeah, that's uh, what I do basically is I travel and I speak and um, share some of these experiences with people and hope that it actually helps them in their life, you know, share yeah. some thoughts. Well, um, you telling me the story of your mum, it, it actually brought tears to my eyes. Um, so I, you know, excited for that book to come out and, and people should definitely get a hold of it. And like you say, they can pre-order it now. Um, what we, uh, generally do to finish off is um, if you've got like a quote or, or something that you kind of directs your life and hasn't really done you wrong and you keep coming back to if you've got anything or, or something that you learned out of this massive experience you know and you've been through a lot of massive experiences yeah. some of them on, on your own doing and others that it's just what happens in life but um, what would you what would you sort of leave us with well there's a, there's a couple but um you know it's okay to fail yeah it's it, it, we if we if we go through life being too fearful of failing and and striving for perfection is you're not going to reach your potential mm-hmm. if you take action and then iterate change develop you know if you fail it's feedback it's only feedback and if you're pushing the limits of what's possible for you you are going to fail and that is okay being okay with that and not being embarrassed about that and not trying to win all the time. Failure hurts, and I've failed on many occasions in, in businesses and relationships and races, and, you know, the, it, it wasn't nice. It was horrible sometimes, um, but there was always a learning from it. And, you know, life is a, is a rich tapestry, as they say. And if we just go through trying to... Uh, you know, pick the, the the best horse to bet on all the time, you know, we're not going to actually reach our full potential. And so having that ability to push and jump when you're scared and go, you know, obviously prepare, obviously do all that sort of risk mitigation stuff and all the rest of it. 
but taking chances and not being afraid to fail. And if you do fail, learn to get back up. If there's one thing you learn in life, it's how to get back up after a failure or, or a knockback or a setback or, or a situation and turning everything into a silver lining. You know, like me doing this book with my with uh, mum's story is me turning that story into a silver lining. It's me using that horrific experience that I never wish anyone to go through, but it's done because it's going to help other people who are unfortunately going to go through similar things. And it doesn't have to be just a brain injury. It could be any drama in life. And so that's my way of paying it forward, and it's my way of turning something terrible into something good. And you can always do that. I mean, earlier this year, we lost, um, or last year, sorry now, in March last year, we lost our little baby boy, Joseph, who was born at um, six months um, gestation, and we had a surrogate mum. And mm. this was a journey that I, you know, I'd pushed hard, you know, I'd gone all in. Like with mum, I went all in and we won. And with this situation, I've been trying for years to have a child, I've done everything possible. And we finally had this wonderful surrogate and um, things were going great until he came early and, and died in our arms, you know. And that was, I really struggled to find a positive in that for a while because it was a horrific situation and I felt like I had pushed so hard to make this happen and I'd caused the suffering. But after a few weeks of, of, of you know, grieving and going through this process, I realised that this is what life you cannot predict all the the variables what you can do is go all in and then you can hope for the best and sometimes the you know the worst happens but you can always find some little precious thing that our little boy joseph left us so many blessings that we, we we're not even i'm not even like the 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 it's just some beautiful things that have happened out of it, you know, like the connectedness to my, to my surrogate family now. Her kids are like my kids and our extended families are connected and now. Uh, my husband has changed his whole outlook on life and what he's capable of and he's like, stuff it, my son didn't get to live, so I'm going to. You know, there are blessings that our little boy left behind, even in this horrific situation. And it's finding, having that resilience to stand back up again and go again, no matter what happens to you and if you can do that you're 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 going to have a much more fulfilled life and reach a lot more of your potential and just being able to stand back up again you know it's just really really important um and for us in that situation it's about you know honoring his what he missed out on you know mm. he's living life full on mm. you know so yeah i think that would be a good way to put Part, um, ways is to guys don't fear failure get up again go again when you do and um just yeah be strong lovely think yeah it's it's um yeah it's a it's a thing that you you feel and and yeah it's a great example i guess of of you know of life <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Shit happens. yeah. Shit happens and you can't mm. control all the variables you can just give it your all and that's all you can do. And then you can, you know, hope for the best. And sometimes you can beat the odds like with mum, mm. you know, and that's, you know, and none of us know how long we're going to live for. But <laughs> every day that I have with her is special now, every single day.
Lovely. Righto, Lisa, I'll let you get to your your uh, your, your working job. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much. Can't wait to have you on my show. Thanks, mate. Legend. Cheers. And for the first time, we've had a bit of synergy in that thing to leave us with. Um, go back to our last episode with Ross. No one's getting out alive. <laughs> so, yeah, as Lisa said there, make the most of it. Don't fear failure. Uh, she touched on it there. Failure is feedback if you want to frame it that way. It's a chance for learning. Um, and going to something I've talked about a couple of times, the fear-setting model from Tim Ferriss. What's the worst that could happen? Sometimes it does. Uh, as Lisa's talked about there, sometimes the worst does happen. Uh, but like she said, it's about being resilient, giving yourself off the canvas, dusting yourself off, and uh, trying again, learning from it, trying not to have the mistakes or try to mitigate those risks and, yeah, move through life, enjoying it, loving it, being op optimistic, living less ordinary, maybe extraordinarily. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, thanks so much, Chris Desmond, for setting this up. He was absolutely right. There's a hell of a lot of synergy going on there and um, I might have to get Lisa back for, for another chat as well because um, probably one hour didn't cut it uh, with, with the amount of things that we could have talked about. Um, of course, I'll let you know when the flip side happens when I talk with Lisa again. Um, and what's really awesome is she's super keen to have Mark Eagle, um, who I had back a few episodes ago. I think it's 101 uh, with Mark Eagle. Yeah, yeah it's episode 101. We, we talk a little bit about the sort of vision link um, stuff and how behavior optometry can help with the likes of acquired brain injury, help deal with uh, people that are sympathetic dominant. And, and so like we were talking about there, losing their peripheral vision, um, their ability to integrate movements and things like that. So that just destroys their tracking ability when it comes to reading. Um, get a central block so completely switch off when they try to do anything near, uh, revolt even to anything near. Um, it, it's it's really quite amazing to see when you, when you do those tests in the room with someone, just the way the body reacts. It's, it's yeah. My job's not just uh, getting glasses, and that's probably the least of my job. Um, yeah, I love it. This podcast is brought to you by another one of those tools that's uh, fantastic for acquired or traumatic brain injury, and that's ketone salts. Prove it, range of ketone salts. Uh, they are available now from direct from the website in New Zealand, and those other markets are Australia, Canada, USA, East Asia. I know there's a few of you out there listening to this, which is bloody awesome. I think we featured in the charts in Thailand and, and Dubai the, the other week, which is wicked. Anyway, the ketone salts are the main product there from Pruvit, P-R-U-V-I-T, uh, and they get you into ketosis in under half an hour. Wow. Now, unless you've done some fasting or unless you're... Uh, with the trends and you're eating keto, <laughs> it's 
quite hard to do. Um, I tend to do a more balanced whole meal, whole food, sorry, paleo approach. But that's cool. I've also got um, a family and a, and a little girl to think about. Um, although she was down in some venison yesterday, it was, I was, I was hell impressed. Um, yeah, but the ketone salts can push you into ketosis. And it's an amazing place. It's huge clarity. Um, if you if you like me, you get not plain ropey. It brings you back to earth. It's amazing. Luke Taylor also talked about uh, the ketone salts, helping him recover and helping him keep on task and get through a day after his massive concussion falling off that bike. And um, it's a few episodes back as well. Luke Taylor from Taylor Health, Health and Performance. The other products there is, as I just said, fasting. There's an assisted fast with the help of ketones and keto broth. Uh, also, Signal OS to help activate the CMED DNA repair. Um, also, help you with going to sleep. There's a keto tea there. You can get those other products um, from the website. There's MCT oil. And there's also keto creamer for in your coffee uh, to um, help you with that ket- you know, ketosis or or keto diet type thing, and then there's the keto protein, uh, which is just a little bit of an adaptation on protein, because protein is super important, helps with satiation, helps obviously build muscle, build hormones, um, build your immune system, and that goes back to way back, to Alex and I's um, chat that we had prior to having Billy uh, about our health journeys with Dr. Steve. Protein was one of the massive things that he endorsed um, so yeah, heaps there, check out the website, waiket0.proveitnow.com, P-R-U-V-I-T-N-O-W dot C-O-M. Of course, that's in the show notes, just like all of Lisa's links, check it out, make sure you uh, contact her, contact me, would love to hear from you, love to hear your feedback, and yeah, have a great week, and so stoked to bring you another episode on this tag raw. Cheers.